0: Attacks on civilian population is a war crime and attacks on military objectives, which have a disproportionate effect on the civilian population, would also be a war crime.
1: Hello and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer. Now, one of the downsides of a podcast, as opposed to, say, live radio, is there can often be a short delay between recording and the date of a broadcast. And as we have a particular interest in this podcast on the intersection between law, politics and international affairs, it does put us at risk of being out of date before we've even started. And today's podcast may exemplify that concern because it um, touches on the dispute between Russia and Ukraine. And as I speak in mid-February 2022, tens of thousands of Russian troops remain on the border. Western leaders talk up the imminence of an invasion and the threat of consequences for Russia. And Ukraine strikes a slightly different tone, calling for calm. By the time you listen to this, that might be all old news. But the scope of today's discussion really doesn't depend too much on precisely where on the map the protagonists are at a given stage. What we want to discuss is the legal framework or frameworks that govern the current conflict and might govern future developments. All parties, as we know, are flinging out the phrase international law, either to proclaim that they're acting in conformity with it or their opponents are flouting it. But what law, if any, are they actually talking about? To help us answer these questions is my colleague, Professor Andrew Clapham, one of the world's foremost experts on international law and international humanitarian law. As well as being a member of Matrix, Andrew is Professor of Public International Law at the Geneva Institute and author of leading textbooks, not least his magisterial works on the Geneva Conventions and the Oxford Handbook of International Law in Armed Conflict. Andrew, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Can I start with the position as it is today at least, or this morning at least, which is, um, the protagonists squaring up to each other, um, Russia, Ukraine, NATO, um, at this stage where it is a lot of jaw-jaw, what role, if any, does law have in helping us understand what's going on?
0: Well, thank you, Richard, for that. Um, I think the law is relevant. And if you look carefully at the speeches of uh, Lavrov and Putin and Belkin, and so on, you one sees that they all are quite concerned to be seen to be acting in accordance with the law. Now, obviously, a full frontal invasion uh, looks like a violation of the UN Charter, and probably would be. But what is interesting is the discussion about whether or not Russia would be entitled to invade in order to protect its population in the Donbas, And we hear statements to that effect from Russian officials. So they are thinking about developing a legal argument as to why any invasion would indeed be legal under international law. So the law is not at all absent. Nobody is saying we're entitled to go to war because we're a sovereign power and war is the prerogative of states. Everybody is looking for a legal route. Um, I could mention on the American side, they are framing uh, their sanctions as a response to illegality. Uh, They are considering countermeasures in the context of any recognition of the separatist states in the Donbass. So law is happening there. It's a bit below the surface. And of course, one could question the efficacy of that law and whether it really means anything.
1: Well, can we break that down a little bit Um, and let's take it firstly um, from the Russian, looking at Russians' actions. And you mentioned that a full-blown invasion would be uh, in breach of the UN Charter. Could you just explain that a little?
0: Sure. Article 2.4 of the UN Charter outlaws the use of force. The only uh, exception to that is if one is acting in self-defense as a result of an armed attack, or if the Security Council has authorized you to go in. So the Security Council obviously hasn't authorized uh, a Russian Federation to go in. So that leaves the issue of self-defense. And so an attack on Russians or Russian service personnel or a Russian embassy could arguably be considered to be an armed attack. And this is where the discussion of so-called false flag operations is coming in with the Western intelligence pointing to that as an option.
1: So false flag may be part of a legal strategy or at least a legal strategy that is uh, interwoven into the military and political strategy?
0: Yes and I mean I think, I don't want to sound cynical, but it would obviously be a way of justifying um, to the world why this action was necessary and legitimate and arguably even legal. And it could be for domestic consumption, it could be for a sort of wider more global consumption, but it's interesting that it's being talked about at all. The other thing which is going on, which we haven't discussed, is that, of course, the International Criminal Court now has a definition of aggression. And so not only is an invasion potentially a violation of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, but the leaders who organise it could, in theory, be prosecuted for the international crime of aggression, just as people were prosecuted in in Nuremberg and Tokyo. Now that the prospects of such prosecutions since the last time we had this, and I think that some people will be thinking about whether or not uh, this invasion could be justified in order to defray arguments about the crime of aggression.
1: The reason why you're, um, I was going to say skeptical, but I think it goes beyond that, is the prospects of um, Russia or Russian military leaders or political leaders being held accountable before um, the International Criminal Court um,
0: it, it, it is based on
1: what?
0: To be held accountable before the International Criminal Court, you'd have to have two things either um, the state from which the leaders came are parties to the Rome Statute and have signed up for the amendment russia has not in either case and therefore it would be impossible for the icc to prosecute under that route or secondly that the security council has referred the situation under chapter seven and for a chapter seven resolution like that russia has a veto so that's not going to happen
1: it's got a veto sorry just just to break that down i mean, chapter seven is chapter seven of the united nations charter that governs the security council and when Resolutions are passed under Chapter Seven. They're generally recognised as having the the kind of force of international law. Is that uh, you, I'm going to ask the professor just to confirm my understanding's right? Uh, and um, of course, a member, a permanent member of the Security Council, which includes Russia, has a has has a right of veto, so that can stop Chapter Seven resolutions dead. Is that my right, Professor?
0: You're right, good student. But of course, um, this is a Matrix podcast, and I have to maybe clarify a couple of things a little more nuanced. So first of all, the reason it has to be Chapter 7 is that the Rome Statute says that a situation has to be referred under Chapter 7. And so they have to invoke Chapter 7 when they're doing the reference. At the same time, the UN Charter allows the permanent five members a veto over Chapter 7 resolutions. Arguably, uh, Russia cannot use its veto under a Chapter 6 resolution um, because of the way the charter is written. And so if it relates to a situation, um, Russia would not have that veto. That's a really complicated area where permanent members don't like to use that rule because they want to reserve themselves the right to block things. But in any event, for the Rome Statute, uh, it has to be Chapter 7 and Russia would be entitled to use its veto. Where there is some relevance to the crime of aggression is if a state chose to exercise a sort of universal jurisdiction over the crime of aggression for a Russian leader that traveled through that state. So just as people get arrested for torture in London and Germany and elsewhere and can be prosecuted under jurisdiction in those states, it is theoretically possible that a Russian leader would be uh, liable to be arrested and prosecuted for aggression in one of about 40 states around the world that, that have that kind of jurisdiction. Now, that's a long shot, but you know, it's a podcast about the law. The law on the crime of aggression, I think, exists. It is an international crime. And if you travel to a state that wouldn't recognize your immunity and uh, decided to prosecute you, uh, that's a theoretical possibility. So it might mean that some people would change their travel plans in order not to be prosecuted for the crime of aggression.
1: That's um, a kind of a very helpful way of understanding kind of the legal context if there is a full-blown invasion of Russia into into Ukraine. But you've also raised the spectre of a more limited incursion into the Russian majority-speaking uh, enclaves within Ukraine. And could we expect there to see a different legal justification advanced by Russia? And if so, what is it? And how can we gauge or calibrate the merits of of, of that justification?
0: I'm speculating here. I haven't seen this written down. But if Russia were to say that uh, our Russian-speaking population or the Russian nationals in the Donbass are at danger, and Putin, I think, has used the word genocide. Are at danger of being killed. We have to step in as a matter of, you could use the expression, responsibility to protect, or self defence. Um, they would argue that, therefore, that's not a manifest violation of the charter, and that, in fact, they are acting within their rights to self defence. The the sort of legal area becomes a bit more blurred. I think what what is clear, though, is if they tried to seize that territory and annex it, as they did with Crimea, they are not entitled under international law to seize territory, even if arguably acting in self defence. And so the rest of the world would be under an obligation not to recognise that area as part of Russia, but to consider it occupied Ukraine. And so from a legal perspective, that does change things because the people there become a population under occupation and the mistreatment of that population becomes a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. Uh, Anybody willfully engaging in those acts commits a war crime and a grave breach and could be arrested anywhere in the world for a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. So any part of uh, Ukraine that is occupied would come within that regime. So things do start to change when we talk about occupied territory.
1: Can I ask you then to turn to sort of the other side uh, and the um, legal framework that governs, firstly, Ukraine and Ukraine's reaction to what's going on on its border? And secondly, am I going to use the generic term, the West or NATO, uh, what governs, their responses to
0: what's going on? Good question. So, I mean, Ukraine is obviously entitled to act in self-defense. But in order to act in self-defense, you would have to show an armed attack. And Russia would say, we haven't attacked you. We have just lined up troops on your border. And if you are being uh, subjected to violence from within Ukraine, that is because people are separatists and not because they are Russian service personnel. We have not sent anybody there to attack you. So Russia would say Ukraine does not have the right in self-defence to respond against Russia at this point. Um, the second part of your question, can you remind me?
1: Yeah, it's to do with what's in terms of NATO and the NATO, yes, got, what kind of what's the legal framework that governs what of ob, any obligations that we have in respect of the current situation or governs what responses that we might have um, if there is a full full-blown or limited incursion, full-blown invasion or limited incursion.
0: Okay, so if um Russia attacks um Ukraine in whatever form we want to call it, Ukraine is entitled to self-defense, and Ukraine is entitled to what's called collective self-defense. So Ukraine can ask uh Britain or France or the United States or whoever to come to its aid and join the armed conflict against Russia. Now, based on reports in the media, um, no state is at the moment putting up its hand and saying, we will come to your defense if you are attacked. What they are doing is saying, we will come to the defense of a NATO state that is attacked. And that is why you have troops being moved into NATO states um, to prevent any kind of spillover into those states. Having said that, there is nothing to stop any NATO state from coming to Ukraine's defence if Ukraine is attacked. And and they're entitled to do that under the UN Charter, which says not only is a state entitled to use self-defence, but it is entitled to engage in collective self-defence. And as long as um, it puts out a proper request, uh, any state is entitled to come and join Ukraine, and engage in self-defense, which is proportionate and necessary.
1: Can I ask you again then about proportionality and what's proportionate and necessary? Because at the moment, the main response of the West, looking at the US administration, the EU and NATO, is to talk in terms of sanctions. Um, again, from a legal perspective, the um, what's the basis upon which those can be, from an international law perspective, lawfully applied?
0: So international lawyers might draw a distinction between what are called um, reprisals and retortion. So retortion would mean that they react, but in ways which are not violating international law if there hadn't been some original violation. So for example, a travel ban is more like a retortion, you could call it a sanction. But the point is that you're not obliged to have anybody come to your country. So if you put a travel ban on, I don't know, uh, Mr. Putin or or anybody else, um, you're not really doing anything that you're not entitled to do anyway. So we could call those retortionary measures and some of the sanctions um, which might relate to Russian travel or the right to settle abroad and so on would, would come into that basket. On the other hand, uh, sanctions, which entail a violation of international law, need to be proportionate to the violation of international law that triggered them. So uh, some sort of freezing of government assets and things like that, which you're not normally entitled to do, um, those would need to be proportionate to the violation. Now, I think many people would accept that a freezing of money is proportionate to an invasion involving massive violence so i don't think there would be a a problem with that um where it becomes more complicated would be what is proportionate to a recognition of the independence of states such as donetsk and lugansk um what sort of reaction is there you know you can't say well we're going to recognize other breakaway entities that we're not entitled to do, because that makes no sense. You're not entitled to do it full stop. So some kind of sanction that is proportionate and designed to bring Russia back into compliance would have to be designed. Um, But we're sort of still quite a long way away from that.
1: I mean, in the post-9-11 world, we saw sanctions and travel bans um, being introduced, again, through the Security Council, through Chapter 7 resolutions, to set up a kind of an international law framework. Um, presumably, no one's talking in those terms here, again, because Russia is a member of the, is a permanent member, member of the P5.
0: Indeed, but also, you have to remember, in the post 9-11 world, those sanctions were put on members of Al-Qaeda and later members of ISIS. So those people didn't really have any supporters, and they weren't really sanctions against states. So they weren't in a way violations of international law i mean if you sanction a wanted criminal if you like who's not allowed to travel through countries yes there could be an interference with human rights and those human rights issues get challenged but it's not the same as taking measures against a state where that state is going to say but my rights under international law have been violated and used countermeasures in its own way to to try and bring the other side back into compliance. So Putin has all kinds of levers um, over the price of gas and the flow of gas, um, which he could use, which your average member of Al-Qaeda or ISIS wouldn't have. So I think, you know, they're not really comparable.
1: No, but we have seen, um, again, particularly since the end of the Cold War, the uh, Security Council... Uh, trying to interpose itself into a range of kind of state-to-state conflicts. Um, It seems particularly, um, well, it's acutely redundant here, where one of the protagonists is um, a member of the P5. So it seems to be a case that the United Nations, which has often tried to set legal frameworks for interventions in other countries to diffuse disputes, um, that, that works until it's, um, you start playing with the big boys?
0: Well, I suppose I, I would back up a little and say I'm not sure that the Security Council has really done so much on interstate disputes. Um, it's been much more in terms of counterterrorism, where everybody is sort of agreed. But when it comes to interfering with the behaviour of a state, Um, You know, I don't see the Security Council as having done much about Syria or Ethiopia. Um, It's happier sort of dealing with rogue elements, you know, that it wants to put a travel ban on or ban arms from getting to. So there are arms embargoes on arms going to certain rebel groups in Africa, but often they lift the arms embargo on the African state itself. So I think it's not only about the P5, it's really the UN not really always being able to control the states themselves. So
1: Andrew, can I um, move away um, from the situation as it currently is and the general principles of international law that apply and project with a rather pessimistic view down the line and assume a Russian invasion, either a full scale invasion of Ukraine or a limited incursion into, say, the Donetsk region? We move then, don't we, from different types, one type of legal, international law, legal framework to another or at least another one becomes relevant as well, which is international humanitarian law, the laws of war. Is A, is that right? And B, are we then in an international armed conflict? And what are the rules of IHL that that govern the behaviour of the parties?
0: Right. So we would have a a full scale international armed conflict um, playing out between two states which would mean that the, the four Geneva Conventions would apply and the uh, other relevant treaties. The key thing is that uh, attacks on civilian population is a war crime and attacks on military objectives, which have a disproportionate effect on the civilian population, would also be a war crime. So uh, you know, the argument where we were aiming to hit this barracks or this missile depot, but you know, hundreds of civilians were killed, has to be weighed into that um, equation. Now, uh, that is obviously significant because it would mean all of the, not just the leaders, which is what I mentioned for aggression, but all of the commanders and indeed individual soldiers would be potentially liable for prosecution um, for war crimes uh, in various states around the world, um, including obviously in Ukraine, um, if they were captured um, there. And Russia would be under an obligation to prosecute war crimes uh, for its own armed forces.
1: Yeah, but is that, I mean, all very well on paper, but um, do you think that the spectre of uh, prosecution before uh, a Russian court or uh, the International Criminal Court is going to operate on the minds of Russian commanders and soldiers on the ground in the event of an, a, a, an invasion?
0: Well, I mean, even more so than the crime of aggression that I mentioned before, these are crimes um, of universal jurisdiction. And while only about 40 states um, have the sort of legislation that could prosecute the crime of aggression, and even fewer of those uh, would probably be willing to try to attempt such prosecution, every state in the world is party to the Geneva Conventions. And the grave breaches regime uh, is a crime of universal jurisdiction. And so I think some people do think well, afterwards, um, I mean, to be honest, you're right, people don't think when they're ordering these things, am I going to be prosecuted in the south of France for a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. But it's more the morality of knowing that you are committing a war crime and thinking that this could, you know, hang over you for the rest of your life. So I I still like to think that there is some dissuasive effect uh, of having a war crimes regime which would be triggered uh, from the beginning of that type of invasion that you were talking about.
1: Andrew, can I ask you finally to kind of a a long view question, which is it's obviously what's going on at the moment is deeply worrying. It's hard to take anything good uh, out of the um, position we find ourselves in and the people of Ukraine find themselves in. From a long view, from an international law perspective, can we at least hold on to the fact that at least the parties are saying they are trying to conform with international law? At least it is, remains a framework that people have to nod to rather than a totally lawless world. Is that a real thing to hold on to, or is it just illusory?
0: I don't think it's illusory. I mean, I think it is worth hanging on to. And it is worth reminding people that these things do have consequences. Um, There's an interesting judgment, which has just come down from the International Court of Justice in the last uh, few days, regarding the Democratic Republic of Congo and Uganda. And it's an award of reparations of about 300 million to be paid over a few years. And it goes through all the kinds of violations that we've just been talk- talking about an invasion of another country in violation of two, four, human rights violations, violations of the Geneva Conventions. And it's all tabulated in terms of people displaced, personal injuries, the killing of soldiers in the way, in violation of the norm against aggression, and so on. So, you know, it, it's, it's obviously many, many years after the facts, but uh, it is possible that um, people are starting to think, well, actions do have legal consequences. Um, last time we talked, I think we talked a bit about my, my book on war, where I go through some of the older ideas about war. And in the past, uh, the winner of the war got to keep everything, enslave everybody, And also charge the other side for the cost of prosecuting the war. And in a situation like we have today, if it had been a couple of hundred years ago, I mean, people would say, well, we have a dispute. We're entitled to settle this by war. We will declare war in conformity with the norms. And then the winner, you know, will have God on their side and will be entitled to everything that they can take afterwards. And they would take huge swathes of territory. And the rest of the world would recognize that they were entitled to do that because they'd won the war. Now, today, whoever wins the war doesn't get to keep the territory that they win. I mean, of course, they can keep it de facto and call it occupied. But the rest of the world, in my view, is not going to recognise that. And that's some sort of progress.
1: Well, Andrew, I'm going to end it there because I want to grab onto any optimistic uh, long term view we can. Um, But I, 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 I agree with you that seen through the prism of international law, The kind of long arc of development is a positive one. And hopefully someday we'll end up with ICJ judgments that are enforceable and in force, not just against the parties uh, who were before it last week, but also parties such as Russia and indeed the United Kingdom and the United States uh, as and when they breach international law. Um, So let's hope that arc, which of course isn't entirely linear, (laughs) Let's hope it continues to progress in the right direction. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for joining and providing such a kind of valuable um, overview of the legal framework to help us understand what's going on on the ground at the moment. Thank you.
0: Thank you.